Life isn't fair. And you know what? It can't be. Here's the problem. The word fair doesn't mean justice or equity or indeed anything very specific. Instead, it's become a sort of all-purpose statement of moral superiority. Superiority tinged paradoxically with victimhood. Now, fairness does have an exact meaning in certain contexts. For example, if we're playing a game, fairness means that the rules should be applied impartially. When we're kids and our parents and teachers set the rules, the word still has that essential meaning. It's a young person's way of demanding what we might call equality before the law. But as we get older, the word becomes more of a whine. In the mouth of a teenager, trust me on this, it's not fair means, more often than not, you won't let me do something I want. In recent years, though, something odd has happened. Adults have started using the word in much the same way that teenagers do. More than in any previous generation, people today retain their teenage sense of self-centeredness. They use it's not fair as a catch-all complaint, as an assertion of wounded entitlement. Look at a Google graph of the use of the word fairness. From around 1965, it looks like the proverbial hockey stick. Flat, and then it suddenly shoots up. We've developed a fairness obsession. But what do we mean when we use the word? Do we mean justice? Do we mean equality? Do we mean need? Or do we mean something else? Suppose you and Jane buy a cake together. You pay $6 and Jane pays $4. What would be the fair way to split it up? You could do it on the basis of proportionality. In other words, you get 60% of the cake and Jane gets 40%. Or you could do it on the basis of strict egalitarianism, half each regardless of who paid what. Or you could do it on the basis of wealth. Jane has much less money than you for non-essentials like cake, so maybe she should get the larger share. A case can be made for each approach. But the beauty of the word fair is that it doesn't require you to come down clearly in favour of any of them. It gives you the cover of ambiguity. So, for example, when a politician says, we want the rich to pay their fair share, he doesn't usually mean that he wants the rich to pay taxes at the same rate as everyone else. He means that he wants them to pay extra. The word fair lets him present higher rates of taxation as a form of justice. But only if we don't think about it too hard. That's the beauty of it. Fair doesn't ultimately mean proportionate or impartial or equal. You can use it to mean almost any positive thing you like. I want fairness generally means, look at me, I'm a nice person. Demanding fairness lets you tell the world how decent you are without your actually having to contribute a penny. It's a kind of vanity. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Let's get real. The only way to distribute the cake is to see how much people are prepared to pay for their slice. Sure, that could leave a banker with a bigger slice than a baker. Sure, we might not like that distribution. We might feel that the baker is doing something more valuable than the banker. He's making delicious pastries while the money man doesn't seem to be making anything except money for himself. But how can we judge someone else's economic worth? You might want bakers to be paid more than bankers. I might want teachers to be paid more than movie stars. Since we all have our own preferences, the only way to measure the economic value of a service is to see how much others are prepared to pay for it. That's what the market does. It aggregates our preferences. It doesn't ask us in the abstract what we think someone else deserves. It tests in reality how many hours of our own labour we're prepared to put in in exchange for a product or a service. Under every other economic system, our relations are mediated by Accidents of birth and social caste and financial rewards are determined by favouritism. The free market alone gives everyone the same rights. My money is as good as yours. You can't get fairer than that. I'm Daniel Hannan, President of the Initiative for Free Trade and author of Inventing Freedom for Prager University.
Thank you for watching this video. To help keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. So what is your advice to young people when you talk about you need to be individually responsible, but when there are things that are so far out of our control, like climate catastrophe, like the precarious job economy, like you know, the They're economic crisis, what, what, is, what, is, what is your answer I mean, do you to think people that who you're are worse facing off these than questions? Your, do you think that you're worse off than your grandparents? I think there are different challenges. Do you think you're worse off than your grandparents? The argument, I think, is the individual responsibility does not change um, the climate, does not fix the problem that needs global collective responsibility. So I think that's the core of the question. Do you have a, a theory about that? Well, fundamentally, I'm a psychologist, and my experience has been that people can do a tremendous amount of good for themselves and for the people who are immediately around them by looking to their own inadequacies and their own flaws and the things that they're not doing in their lives and starting to build themselves up as more powerful individuals. And if they're capable of doing that, and then they're capable of expanding their career. And if they're capable of expanding their career and their competence, then they're capable of taking their place in the community as effective leaders. And then they're capable of making wise decisions instead of unwise decisions when it comes to making collective political decisions. I'm not suggesting in the least and have never suggested that there's no domain for social action. I'm suggesting that people who don't have their own houses in order should be very careful before they go about reorganizing the world, which happens in many ways. <laughs> so, now you can, can, can I just, just to... If a young person believes that the uh, climate, the global warming, um, problem on the climate is something that needs to be tackled quickly and they can't wait until they grow up and become prime ministers to do it. Do, do you think collective responsibility overrides individual responsibility in a huge issue like that? No. <laughs> okay. I don't. Okay. I, I think that generally, I think that generally, I think that generally people, I think generally people have things that are more within their personal purview that are more difficult to deal with and that they're avoiding and that generally the way they avoid them is by adopting uh, pseudo-moralistic stances on large-scale social issues so that they look good to their friends and their neighbors. That's what it looks like. A major difference between the right and the left concerns the way each seeks to improve society. Conservatives believe that the way to a better society is almost always through the moral improvement of the individual, by each person doing battle with his or her own weaknesses and flaws. It is true that in violent and evil societies such as fascist, communist, or Islamist tyrannies, the individual must be preoccupied with battling outside forces. Almost everywhere else, though, certainly in a free and decent country such as America, the greatest battle of the individual must be with inner forces, that is, with his or her moral failings. The left, on the other hand, believes that the way to a better society is almost always through doing battle with society's moral failings. Thus, in America, the left concentrates its efforts on combating sexism, racism, intolerance, xenophobia, homophobia, Islamophobia, and the many other evils that the left believes permeate American society. One important consequence of this left-right distinction is that those on the left are far more preoccupied with politics than those on the right. Since the left is so much more interested in fixing society than in fixing the individual, politics inevitably becomes the vehicle for societal improvement. That's why whenever the term activist is used, we almost always assume that the term refers to someone on the left. Another consequence of this left-right difference is that since conservatives believe society has changed one person at a time, they accept that change happens gradually. This isn't fast enough for the left, which is always and everywhere focused on social revolution. An excellent example of this was a statement by the then presidential candidate Barack Obama just days before his first election in 2008. 
To a rapturous audience, he declared, we are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. Conservatives not only have no interest in fundamentally transforming the United States of America, they are strongly opposed to doing so. Conservatives understand that fundamentally transforming any society that isn't fundamentally bad, not to mention transforming what is one of the most decent societies in history, can only make the society worse. Conservatives believe that America can be improved, but should not be transformed, let alone fundamentally transformed. The founders of the United States recognized that the transformation that every generation must work on is the moral transformation of each citizen. Thus, character development was at the core of both child-rearing and of young people's education from elementary school through college. As John Adams, the second president, said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And in the words of Benjamin Franklin, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. Why is that? Because freedom requires self-control. The freer the society, the more self-control is necessary. If the majority of people don't control themselves, the state, meaning an ever more powerful government, will have to control them. From the founding of the United States until the 1960s, schools and parents concentrated on character education. But with the ascent of left-wing ideas, character education has all but disappeared from American schools. Instead, children are taught not to focus on their flaws, but on America's. Social issues have replaced character education. An example is a new K-12 science curriculum, the next generation of science standards, which will teach young Americans starting in kindergarten about global warming. And when they get to college, American young people will be taught about the need to fight economic inequality, white privilege, and the alleged rape culture on their campuses. Ironically, if there really is a rape culture that permeates American college campuses, the only reason would have to be that there was so little character education in our schools, or for that matter, at home. Fathers and religion, historically the two primary conveyors of self-control, are non-existent in the lives of millions of American children. We are now producing vast numbers of Americans who are passionate about fixing America while doing next to nothing about fixing their own character. The problem, however, is that you can't make society better unless you first make its people better. I'm Dennis Prager. Time, who cares? <laughs> oh. Apple roared into the, the TV game with a morning show. A superb drama, yeah. A superb drama about the importance of dignity and doing the right thing, made by a company that runs sweatshops in China. So, well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Apple, Amazon, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? So, if you do win an award tonight, don't use it as a, a platform to make a political speech, right? You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. You know nothing about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg. So, if you win, right, come up, accept your little award, thank your agent and your god, and... So... Dear celebrities, I'm sorry to be the one to have to break this to you, but we do not care not in the slightest particle of an imaginary thing, what you think. If this surprises you, I understand, because let's be fair, we have played an important role in your delusion. We camp out for days to buy tickets to your sold-out shows, then shout for you to reach down from the stage to touch our hands. 
faster than science would believe humanly possible, we learn the lyrics to your every song and master the choreography to your every dance move. We devour your movies, TV shows, and Netflix specials. From that angle, I suppose it's easy to believe that after all the adulation, all the fan mail, and all the magazine covers, you may have actually come to believe that we care what you think. But you're wrong. Nobody cares what you think. Nobody. Well, maybe your mother and your therapist do, but we don't, not even a little. Allow me to spell this one out for you. I go to a Lady Gaga concert to hear her belt out tunes that remind me of my messy college days. But watching her desperate protests against the results of a free and fair election? Hardly an event I'd ever care to see again in my lifetime. I follow Beyonce because, let's face it, nobody does a breakup anthem better. But can someone please tell me why I should care if she's for Hillary or for Garfield the Cat? And here's to you, Mark Jacobs. You design a killer pair of shoes. But as a political philosopher, you leave a lot to be desired. In fact, it's difficult to comprehend why you thought it necessary to publicly refuse to dress our first lady. And to the scores of celebrities who threaten to move out of the country if we don't vote your way, wow. Just how long on a private jet must one travel to reach that level of narcissism? This may rock your glittery world, but we don't care whether you stay in America or move to another country. Why would we care where you live? On the one hand, we should find all of this amusing, but on the other, it's actually deeply offensive. It's offensive that you confuse our admiration for blind faith. When Eminem raps that I have to either pick him or the President of the United States, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Which is why it's important that I take this moment to offer each and every one of you celebs a free ride back down to planet Earth. What happens outside of your gated communities, chauffeured SUVs and personal assistance iPhone is the real world. It's the rest of us working very hard to earn a living, working toward that weekend break when we can perhaps afford to treat ourselves to your concerts, your movies, and your handbags. You see, we want to enjoy what you do. Sing, dance, act, design. It's a wonderful gift you have, and it's extremely valuable, not only to you, but to us. Entertaining people, making them laugh or cry, it's something that you should take pride in. You enrich our world with your talent. But when you go on a political rant on late night TV or call your fans racist and sexist, my God, these people are your fans. Just because they don't think or vote the way you want them to? You cross a line. You lose touch with reality. You become just another shill for another politician. And who wants to be a fan of that? I'm Candace Owens for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To help keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. Does an American citizen have a constitutional right to own a gun? Here's what the Second Amendment says. A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. Now, it once seemed to me like that language only protected state militias and not individuals. Indeed, this is the view held by the four dissenting Supreme Court justices in the 2008 case of District of Columbia versus Heller, a landmark case dealing with gun ownership. But the more research I did, the more I came to realize that my initial view was mistaken and that the founders were in fact securing an individual right. The five justices who voted to affirm the right to own a gun in DC versus Heller had indeed made the correct decision. Let's look at the amendment one more time. A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed.
we first need to focus on the phrase, the right of the people. Note that the people are the only ones whose right is secured here, not the militia or a state government. This phrase, the right of the people, comes up a few times in the Constitution. For example, the First Amendment refers to the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government. And the Fourth Amendment secures the right of the people to be secure against unreasonable searches and seizures. Why then, if the authors of the Constitution felt so strongly about the right of the people to own guns, did they include language about a well-regulated militia? These opening words of the amendment might be called a justification clause. Such clauses are used to help explain why a right is being secured. But it's the operative clause that explains what right is being secured. In this case, the right of the people to keep and bear arms. And what was the word militia understood to mean at the time? Well, the Militia Act of 1792 defined militia to mean all white males 18 to 45. Today, of course, militia would include women and people of all races, but it was clearly not a reference to a small National Guard-type group. And what about the part of the amendment that says a militia is necessary to the security of a free state? What the opponents of personal gun ownership ask, does a personal right of gun ownership have to do with that? Again, historical context is key. In the 1790s, the phrase free state wasn't used to mean an individual state like New York or Rhode Island. Rather, it meant what we'd call today a free country, a nation free of despotism. A free state is what the framers wanted America to be. They saw an armed citizenry as in part a hedge against tyranny. Citizens who own weapons can protect themselves, prevent tyrants from seizing power, and protect the nation from foreign enemies. This does not mean, though, that this right is unlimited. Free speech, for example, has long been subject to some narrow and reasonable regulations. But severe restrictions on owning a gun, like severe restrictions on free speech, would violate the Second Amendment as the founders understood it. Maybe you think this understanding of the Second Amendment is outdated today, that the Constitution needs to change as public attitudes change. The founders included a provision for doing just that. If the public attitude really has changed, the Constitution can be amended to reflect that change. But ironically, even if we focus on current public attitudes, the case for individual gun ownership is as strong as ever. Polls consistently show that over two-thirds of Americans believe that the Second Amendment secures the right of citizens to own a gun. And Congress and state governments have repeatedly reaffirmed this view, including in recent decades. So, does the Second Amendment secure an individual right to bear arms? It did when it was written, it has throughout American history, and it does today. I'm Eugene Volokh, professor of law at UCLA for Prager University. So now seems like as good a time as every other moment prior till now to talk about climate change. The planet has already warmed by one degree Celsius since the time we started burning all these fossil fuels. And we're on track to warm by four degrees possibly as soon as 2060. According to the most recent UN study, even two degrees of warming would mean millions more refugees, double the loss of food harvest, 10 centimeters of sea level rise, and an obliteration of all coral reefs. Which means we've got 12 years to have a shot at keeping the temperature to a still bad but manageably terrifying one and a half degrees Celsius of warming. So yeah, banning plastic straws ain't gonna cut it. We face an existential threat. Life as we know it is on the line. We have 12 short years to change everything or it's game over. This is the terrifying scenario that's used by many leading politicians to justify a Green New Deal, an unprecedented increase in government power focused on the energy industry. The core idea of a Green New Deal is that government should rapidly prohibit the use of fossil fuel energy and impose 100% renewable energy, mostly solar and wind. This may sound appealing, but consider what it would entail. Today, 80% of the energy Americans use to heat their homes, farm their land, run their factories, and drive their cars comes from fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas. Only 3.4% comes from solar and wind, despite decades of government subsidies and mandates to encourage their use. The reason we don't use much sunlight and wind as energy is that they are unreliable fuels that only work when the sun shines and the wind blows. 
That's why no town, city, or country has ever come close to 100% or even 50% solar and wind. And yet, Green New Deal proponents say they can do the impossible, if only we give the government control of the energy industry and control of major users of energy, such as the transportation industry, manufacturing, and agriculture. All of this is justified by the need to do something about the existential threat of rising CO2 levels. We're told on a daily basis that prestigious organizations like the United Nations have predicted mass destruction and death if we don't get off fossil fuels. What we're not told is that such predictions have a decades-long track record of getting it wrong. And by wrong, I mean completely missing the dartboard wrong. For example, in 1989, the Associated Press reported a United Nations prediction that entire nations could be wiped off the face of the Earth by rising sea levels if the global warming trend is not reversed by the year 2000. We're now two decades past 2000. We're not missing any nations, and human beings are living longer, healthier, and wealthier lives than ever before. But aren't things bound to get worse? Haven't scientists established that CO2 is a greenhouse gas with a warming influence on the planet? Yes, but that's only a small part of the big picture. Although CO2 causes some warming, it's much less significant than we've been told. Since we started using significant amounts of fossil fuels in the middle of the 19th century, we've increased the percentage of CO2 in the atmosphere from 0.03% to 0.04% which correlates with an average temperature increase of about 2 degrees Fahrenheit. It also correlates with significant global greening, because CO2 is plant food. All of this is far from unprecedented territory for our planet, which has existed with at least 10 times today's CO2 levels and a 25-degree warmer average temperature. What is truly unprecedented, though, is how safe we are from climate. The International Disaster Database, a nonpartisan organization that tracks deaths from climate-related causes, such as extreme heat, floods, storms, and drought, shows that such deaths have been plummeting as CO2 emissions have been rising. How is this possible? Because of the fossil fuel energy that emitted the CO2, which has empowered us to climate-proof our environment with heating, air conditioning, sturdy buildings, mass irrigation, and weather warning systems. Fossil fuel energy has not taken a naturally safe climate and made it unnaturally dangerous. It's taken our naturally dangerous climate and made it unnaturally safe. Fossil fuels are not an existential threat. They're an existential resource because they increase something much more important than the level of CO2 in the atmosphere the level of human empowerment. Increased life expectancy, income, health, leisure time, and education are all tightly linked to increased access to fossil fuels. Does this mean that we shouldn't look for lower carbon energy alternatives? Of course not. But the alternatives should lead us toward more abundant, more reliable power, not less. The most promising form of alternative energy is not unreliable solar and wind, but reliable, carbon-free nuclear energy. Sweden gets 40% of its electricity from nuclear, France over 70%. While nuclear energy is smeared as unsafe, it has actually been demonstrated by study after study to be the safest form of energy ever created. And yet, Green New Deal proponents who say that we have 12 years to save the planet from rising CO2 levels vigorously oppose nuclear, in addition to all fossil fuel use. By opposing every affordable, abundant, reliable form of energy, the Green New Deal won't protect us from an existential threat. It is an existential threat. Woke white people, I'd like to ask you a favor. Please stop asking for forgiveness for your white privilege. You're not fooling anybody. You're not helping black people or any other minority. And your public confessions don't make you look virtuous. They make you look disingenuous, which is a really nice way of saying fake, phony, and fraudulent. For starters, what is white privilege anyway? Because you're born with white skin? 
you have all these advantages that I don't have? Like what? Like you can get a mortgage loan that I can't get? Hmm, I got a loan at a great rate, by the way, and I got the house. Why would a banker not give a loan to someone who met the loan requirements? He doesn't want to make money? I've never heard of such a banker. Or how about this? You can enter a store and not be looked upon with suspicion, but I, a black person, cannot? Except that has never happened to me. But if I was a young dude with my pants hanging down to my butt, I could understand why the store owner would be concerned. I used to be a cop. Believe me, I understand. If I owned the store, I'd be tracking that kid too, whether he was black, white, or anything else. Or what if I had a store that had a history of being shoplifted by young black women and a young black woman with a bad attitude walked in? Would I be suspicious? Yeah, I would. Who wouldn't? I call that common sense, not bigotry. But there's another way of looking at this. In many ways, in today's America, blacks have more privilege than whites. It's been my experience that whites bent over backwards to give blacks every possible advantage. If two people are equally qualified for a job, the black person will usually get it. Big companies and prestigious universities fall all over one another trying to sign up talented black people. If you deny this, you are denying reality, which is what the person who dreamed up this whole thing did. A professor of women's studies at Wellesley College by the name of Peggy McIntosh. She wrote in an article in 1988 about all the white privilege she thought she had. She listed 46, including this one. I can choose bandages and flesh color and have them more or less match my skin. Wow, that's some kind of privilege. Soon others took up the cause. Today, these so-called progressives dominate our colleges and universities, imposing this absurd notion of white privilege on their students. That's too bad because it does nothing good for white students and it does nothing good for black students. But of the two, ironically, the white students get the better of the deal. Let me explain. To acknowledge your white privilege is supposed to make you feel bad. Only it doesn't. It makes you feel good because by acknowledging your white privilege, you're declaring yourself to be enlightened. And as a virtue bonus, it also makes you a better person than those whites who don't acknowledge their privilege. White privilege, which is supposed to make you feel bad, ends up making you feel good. Meanwhile, the real damage is to blacks. What makes whites feel good makes blacks angry. More than 50 years after the civil rights movement, the message is, you're still oppressed. How can this not create a victim mentality? And anyone of any color who sees himself as a victim gets angry. Now, I wouldn't deny for a second that there are privileges in life. They're all over the place. There's two-parent family privilege. That's huge. There's being lucky to be born in America privilege. There's good gene privilege. But white privilege? Doesn't it depend on the person? Let's take this for example. A black lawyer and his wife have a baby. And a meth addict, single white woman, has a baby. Which kid has privilege? The white one? Because he's white? Come on now. And here's the kicker. Even if it were true, all those claims about white privilege, so what? Would it change a single thing I did? If white people apologize for being white, is that supposed to help me? In what way? So let's be real. White privilege is an attempt by the left to divide Americans by race. It's all theory and all nonsense. If you want to fall for it, go ahead. It's a free country, but don't try to sell it to me. I'm an American who deal with my fellow Americans one-on-one. -on -one. Try it. It works. I'm Brandon Tatum for Prager University. Hello, everybody. I'm Dennis Prager. This is my home, my fire, and my dog. That's pretty much it. My home, my fire, my dog. It's the Fireside Chat. I have this with you every week. It's a chance to have as utterly 100% unscripted. There is no, um, there's no, uh, what do you call it, teleprompter. There, I'm not reading from anything. I am just, as it were, sharing thoughts about life with you. 
So thanks for watching and thank you for all the love letters to Otto. There are now people who stop me at the airport and just go say hi to Otto or give Otto a rub. I feel like Otto's uh, companion or <laughs> I, work for, I work for Otto, <laughs> which is fine with me. That's, that's not an issue. Anyway, I, the thing that I do I give some thought to right before I do this each week is what will I open up? with regard to what will I talk about in the beginning. So some things trigger it, some things are things I've been thinking about and just want to share with you. But <clears throat> this one is uh, one I just read. 36% of millennials approve of communism. That was the headline on Market Watch. Some poll was taken. So over a third of millennials, it, it's... It's something I need to address because the issue is, that's bad enough, but the issue is larger than that. How is that possible? That's the, that's the question to be asked. In light of that, again, I, I, I want to always mention related PragerU videos. I did a video titled, Why Isn't, Com Why Isn't Communism as Hated as Nazism? It's, uh, of course, they're all five minutes, and I strongly recommend that to you. My field of study, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever mentioned this, but I might have. My field of study was a fairly rare uh, arena to specialize in. My field was communist affairs. That's what it was called, communist affairs. It was the heyday of the Cold War, and I, uh, I, I did that at the School of International Affairs at Columbia University. And I was at what's called the Russian Institute. They had a, an East Asian Institute, a, an African Institute, a Middle East Institute, a Russian Institute, probably something else. I was at both the Russian and Middle East Institutes because I did uh, Arabic and, and uh, uh, Russian. Uh, uh, I already had known Hebrew. So I specialized in communist affairs. And I was sure when the Cold War ended that... I remember thinking, whoa, am I lucky I didn't go into that field? That won't be relevant anymore. I couldn't even get a job. Uh, but it turns out to have been the most important thing I could have uh, studied, in, in fact, outside of, uh, of religion, which I've been studying my whole life. Because to understand the left and to understand communism is to understand the modern world. It is uh, beyond belief that 36% of millennials approve of communism. It, it shows you how bad our education system is Fr from elementary school on. To, to uh, graduate uh, college or to graduate high school and not know uh, how evil communism uh, has been is as if well, maybe they don't even know. It's like not knowing how evil Nazism has been. I mean, can you imagine if there were a poll, 36% of millennials have a favorable view of Nazism? You would either assume one of two things, right? You would either assume that a third of millennials are evil or a third of millennials are utterly ignorant, Right? Is there any other possibility if a third of millennials or a third of any group thought favorably of Nazism? You know, uh, I, I, again, I, I wonder, which I often wonder, what do you learn in high school and college? And I, and I guess the answer is leftism. How bad America is, how racist America is. And all the uh, related things, you learn a tremendous amount about climate change, I'm sure. But the really important stuff, the, the good and evil stuff, which that's to me, that and history are the most important things you could ever study. What has happened and what is good and what is bad. There's nothing more important. I've always been preoccupied with good and evil. That's why I did communist affairs. That's why I, that was my field of study, because it was so obvious to me that anything that deprives billions of people of the elementary right to speech, to expression, to religion, uh, which uh, and which engaged in 
the greatest genocides in, in human history. It's pretty important to learn about that. I mean, I'm looking at you and I'm asking you at any age, whether you're a millennial or not, do you, do you have any idea uh, how many uh, people Mao killed in China? How many people Stalin killed in the Soviet Union, which was Russia and the, and the republics it owned? How many people Pol Pot's uh, Khmer Rouge, Red Cambodians, killed? Uh, you know, almost a third of Cambodians were, were massacred by the communist regime there. Every communist regime massacres and deprives people of any dignity. There's no dignity when you can't speak freely. That's when you are rendered a, that is that is worse. I do believe that is worse than uh, physical bondage. If, if you said to me, "I could live, free, I could live uh, in my home and have my meals and so on," but I could not say whatever was on my mind, or I could say what is on my mind, but I would be uh, in bondage to to some master. I, I would take uh, the latter. That, by the way, is, is the um, famous American phrase. I think it's on one of the license plates uh, in, in uh, some American state. Give me liberty or uh, give me death. I, actually, that's Patrick Henry. It's live free or die. That's on one of the license plates. I don't remember which state. I think Vermont or New Hampshire, which is somewhat ironic. Isn't Bernie Sanders from Vermont? Guy, guy who uh, honeymooned in the Soviet Union, it's hard to believe he has a license plate on his car, live free or die. <laughs> one of life's ironies, if that's the case, if I'm right about the license plate. You know how many people we're talking about? You know, I mean, you know you have a moral obligation. I believe we owe those who were massacred one thing. We can't undo their suffering. But we can at least give them th the dignity of knowing what they went through. I believe everybody needs to, to read about uh, the Holocaust. I think uh, what, so what the Nazis did. I think everybody needs to read about what Stalin did. Just one book. What Mao did, what Pol Pot did. Uh, it's, I, I, I went to Cambodia a few years ago. And I made it my business to visit what's called the killing fields, where the communists of Cambodia massacred their, their own citizens. These are auto-genocides, by the way. This is the interesting thing. These are genocides against your own people. Mao did it against Chinese. It's between 60 and 80 million people. Now, remember, you have to realize something about the suffering Let's say it's, let's take the lower number, 60 million. So for every one of those, think of all the, 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 think of the ripple effect. The number of people who have suffered because that person died. It's, it's an astonishing number of, of uh, it's a, the, the amount of suffering induced for no good reason. Do you know why a mouse starved 60 million people to death? so that he could send all of the, uh, of the food to the Soviet Union in return for weapons, so that he could make China into a military power. The death of all those people was completely irrelevant. And the suffering, and, and then the Cultural Revolution, uh, and then what Stalin did to between 20 and 40 million people that's just the ones killed, not the ones. We're not talking about the people incarcerated. I mean, how many young people ever heard of the Gulag Archipelago? How could you graduate high school, let alone college, and not know the Gulag or Auschwitz? That's obviously Nazi, but I mean, there are certain terms. I mean, to think that everyone at college knows what preferred pronoun means, but doesn't know what Auschwitz or Gulag is? This is sick, folks. This is sick. This is morally and intellectually sick. Most colleges are worthless. I, actually, I wish they were worthless. They're actually, they're worse than worthless. When you, when, you, when you know such nonsense, what is your preferred pronoun? I should do a talk on preferred pronouns. The preferred pronoun issue should not be an issue. 
I conducted, I conduct orchestras periodically. I conducted an orchestra. Just allow me this uh, tangent for a moment. I conducted uh, this orchestra many years ago, and the uh, timpanist, that's the person who plays the drums the, the, at the, at the, in an orchestra, uh, the, uh, was a woman. And I said to the conductor after the rehearsal, their regular conductor, I said, you know, it's pretty rare to see a, a female timpanist. And he said, he said, yes, uh, but as it happens, uh, this person is a transsexual. That's the way it was known and should be known. And I thought, big deal. And I, it meant nothing. And this is way, way before anything that we talk about trans today. Because it, for all intents and purposes, as far as I was concerned, this was a female. She looked like a female, talked like a female, had a female name, dressed like a female. Nobody cares. She didn't, she, if she were in a class in college, she wouldn't have to announce my preferred pronoun as she. Everybody would have said she. This is not an issue. It's the people who want to uh, destroy male-female distinction that have come up with the preferred pronoun thing. If you look like a woman, then you're a she. Okay, that's important. That's really important. How do you? How could you? How could you not know this? This pure evil known as communism. Well, that's this. It's been an enforced ignorance. That's what it's been. You have a moral obligation to know the suffering of those in the past, especially on such large scale. So that's a very, uh, it's a depressing statistic. Okay, let's see now. Let's begin with our video question. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. All right, I press the magic button. And nothing happens because I didn't press it well enough. Now I did. Okay, hi. Hey Dennis, I'm Vince Dow. I'm a 16-year-old high school student in Los Angeles and I'm a member of PragerForce. My question for you is, what would you say to conservatives who morally support Israel but have problems with the amount of money that America gives to them based simply off of the principles of fiscal conservatism and limiting government spending? Okay, uh, good question. In case you didn't catch it, folks, and thank you, Vince. Vince does not strike me as an introvert, as a shy guy. I have a sense that he feels confident in expressing himself, which is great. And thanks for being on Prager Force. So, let's see. We, I know it's transcribed. What would you say to conservatives who morally support Israel but have problems with the amount of money America gives to Israel because these conservatives offer the principles of fiscal conservatism, fiscal being monetary conservatism, and limiting government spending? Well... There are a number of answers. Uh, number one, not necessarily in order of importance, the vast majority of financial aid we give to Israel, Israel then spends on American military hardware. In effect, it comes back to the United States. And that is not true for all of the countries that we give money to. Number two, if people isolate Israel, there's, uh, there's obviously a hatred of Israel involved. If they say we shouldn't be giving money to anybody, then fine. But if they say we shouldn't be giving money to Israel, you have a very simple question. Why do you isolate Israel? I mean, we give plenty to Egypt and we give plenty to other places. And, and to a very large extent, it is very good for the United States. We want, we want to help countries that are allied with us. Why would we not want to do that? And third, this notion, well, morally, but not fiscally, I don't understand the distinction. Moral is more important to me than anything. That's why I'm not a libertarian. I think morally. I don't only think fiscally. So people have to decide what is the appropriate thing. The day that the, uh, the uh, Muslim countries around Israel say, you know what, <laughs> uh, folks, this, Israel's the size of New Jersey or El Salvador. Let's just leave it alone. You know what, let them live in peace. Let's have a big uh, sort of... Middle East common market or Middle East union uh, and, and benefit each other, then we won't have to give aid to Israel. 
Israel's the most embattled country, the only embattled country for its existence on the face of the earth. I think that's a good enough reason to give, but please know that they spend their money on our stuff, and we get a massive amount from Israel. I mean, if, just think of the Iron Dome, the, the anti, uh, anti-missile defense system that Israel has perfected, it, along with the United States. We get, we get our money's worth many times over in, uh, in supporting uh, Israel. Okay, Mike, 70. That's a, that's a jump. Okay, one minute. How do I get rid of the... Uh, they were the there we go. Uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. Hi. Salutations to Dennis and Otto. Hmm. He was not moved, Mike. Here's a question from an old curmudgeon. Let me start by saying... That's his words. Let me start by saying I hold no malice in my heart for LGBT people, but I really resent the current campaign bent on normalizing and even romanticizing the LGBT way of life. The leftist entertainment industry owns a bully pulpit of influence and is taking full advantage. Why do leftists feel the need to push this on us? Uh, There is a reason. Because, and that is the reason for the hatred of Chick uh, uh, of uh, Chick Fil A originally, until they bent and stopped giving money to the, uh, or the hatred for the Salvation Army, and the, the Chick Fil A no longer gives money to to the Salvation Army. Salvation Army treats everyone equally. If you come for help to the Salvation Army, they don't care if you're trans, if you're gay, if you're bi, if if you're indeterminate. They don't. They just help human beings. But being uh, religious Christians, which is why they're so charitable to a large extent, there's no secular Salvation Army, right? Think about it. Doing the work that they're doing for, for so, such little money, they get paid almost nothing. It's unbelievable the salaries of people in the Salvation Army. But one of their beliefs, aside from loving their fellow human being, is that God believes that it is God's will that men and women marry. I believe that, and it, it, it's, why does that make you a hater? I don't even understand that. Uh, certainly the, the gay couple whose kids my wife and I are godparents to know my, know my belief. They respect me for the belief, in fact, but they're healthy. They, they don't believe that everybody has to believe as they. It's so funny how people on the left always, oh, Christians think everybody has to believe in Christ. Yeah, but you believe everybody has to believe in same-sex marriage. <laughs> and, and, and you force a, a lot more people to do that than Christians force people to believe in Christ. And I'm a Jew saying this. Uh, the, uh, the reason for the anger is, it's, it's not anger at not treating gays properly, which I would be angry at if a person didn't treat a gay properly. It's they angry that they still maintain that marriage should be between a man and a woman. And in my heart, I'm not certain. So I say in my heart, I suspect that they suspect there may be some validity to it. If they were secure in the notion that their line gender doesn't matter, which I think is not true. Gender is extremely significant then why would they care what people think? Why, why would the LGBTQ groups care what the Salvation Army or Chick-fil-A thinks? Right? Thinks. If they don't act on it, what do I care? If you, if you think that I am wrong in my religion, let's say, just totally wrong, but you treat me respectfully, what do I care? You can think I'm wrong, but every leftist movement is totalitarian, meaning they want to control how you think and certainly speak. That's why the left is so dangerous. It is not enough that you treat gays properly, which everyone should. You must think like the LGBTQ community or they will ruin your life. That's the difference. They, they, they don't want us to think a different thought. That's why the left is so scary. It wants to control how you think and how you speak. 
There is no exception to that in the entire world of the left. Liberals don't think that way. Conservatives don't think that way. But the left does. Always did. Always will. It's a distinguishing feature of leftism. Controlling how people think. Andrew, 18, Los Angeles. What are some key values or attributes that help you become successful? P.S. Give Otto some more belly rubs for me. Should I? You're the man. You are the man. That was from Andrew, 18, uh, Otto. What are some key values or attributes that help you become successful? Well, believe it or not, that I aimed, this is going to sound corny, but I'm going to tell you my answer. I didn't aim for success. I, I aimed to do what was right. That was it. That is that is one of the single biggest uh, reasons that uh, that uh, look hard work. I've worked very hard. Uh, I have maximized my uh, gifts. Everyone has gifts. It's a big thing to know what you give. There is no human being I've ever met who doesn't have a gift. It may take a while for you to realize what it is, but uh, that that's a factor. But the 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 biggest for me was that. Uh, I, and all those who know me for many years, and there are many people who do, they, they all always marveled. I, I wasn't, believe it or not, I wasn't particularly ambitious. I mean, I hoped, I hoped I would succeed for the sake of the values I have. But I, it, no, I, I didn't live for success. I, I wanted to have wonderful friends. I wanted to have a wonderful family life. I wanted a whole host of things, but I was never success-driven. And the people who are success-driven become successful sometimes, but, but not for long. It's, it's very few people who, who, for whom it's enduring. And then they, they, they hit a point in life and they go, that, that's it? I got the success, and now what? So, and, and by the way, if you aim for success, you'll never be happy because there's always more success to have, right? You become a CEO of a company, but there's a bigger company you could be a CEO of. That's why I, I'm convinced. That's why billionaires go for $2 billion. They're just not satisfied with $1 billion. <laughs> I, I always wonder, why are you still pushing? I, don't, I never quite figured it out. I, I always think when the Forbes, what is the Forbes 400, the 400 richest people come, Forbes magazine publishes each year. And I always think pe people like us think, wow, boy, you're on that list. You are really rich, which is true. But you know what? Number 17 is not happy. You don't get on that list unless you really want to be rich. Just the way it is. I'm not even saying they're wrong. I, I if they don't hurt anybody, that's fine with me. But I never wanted to be rich. I never wanted to be poor either. Don't get me wrong. I don't believe in poverty. It's not, a, it's not an ideal in my, in my religious conviction. But, uh, but I, I never sought to be rich. I never... Success to me was le leading a good life and having good friends. And as I said, and, and my religion and, my, and, my, and having a family... That's that's what that's real. That's success. The we have we have defined success in an, in a in a bad way. That's that's worthy of a of, of its own open commentary as well. So be be noble. Uh, pursue virtue, and that's that. And 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 all these other things in in life, like friends and family and religion and. Hobbies. I mean, there's so much to give you joy. There's, success doesn't give people as much joy as, the, the, as people think. That's the problem. That's why parents tell oh, you got to get into a good college. You got into so what? So if you don't get into a quote unquote good college, what the hell's the difference? You know, it's amazing. I've 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 on occasion mentioned this. What's our time factor here? 
I've on occasion mentioned this. I have been, I've been on radio 37 years. You should try to hear my radio shows three hours every day, every weekday. It's easily found on the internet, either on a celestial or terrestrial radio or through the internet. So I've, I've, I've often mentioned this. I have been asked almost everything. I've been asked about my, my life, my personal life, my family, my, uh, my childhood. Do you know what? There is only one question I have never been asked, ever. What college did you go to? Nobody cares. This thing that we raise kids to think is the most important thing in their life, and that's what they do think. It's what most parents teach their kids. Got to get into a good college. Got to get into a good college. Got to get into a good college. We're going we're gonna to get you to have a special... Uh, you know, uh, courses uh, so you get better SAT scores and you're going to join 17 extracurricular groups so it's a better uh, better application to some prestigious college. Uh, but he, later, no one cares. Let me tell you, if you're, if you're young right now, nobody's going to give a hoot what, what college you went to. You will, you will either impress people as... Mature, knowledgeable, reliable, hardworking, all these wonderful traits or not. But it doesn't even occur. I'll bet it never occurred to any of you watching me each week. Gee, I don't know if I'm going to watch him next week. I don't know what college he went to. You don't even know if I went to college. And it doesn't matter. That's the point. You earn your bona fides, you, in other words, you get legitimacy in life by how you act, talk, think, etc. How you behave, not where you went to college. So it's all part of the success issue. So by knowing all of that, uh, I have more success today than ever before in my life, but it, it, it's, I was happy before. <laughs> I just was. I, I was. I was trying to do what I could do, and I always said it's. And the rest is in God's hands, right? I will try to do. I. I, I really do believe I want to do what God wants me to do, which is to, uh, in religious terms, bring the world to the Ten Commandments. That's that's what I believe, because if everybody observed the Ten Commandments, we wouldn't need police, we wouldn't need locks on our doors, and nobody uh, would be hurt be a really nice world would be perfect but it would be be terrific that's so that's it and by the way I you know and you know I'm, I'm successful okay so I am successful but it's all relative right I mean you know so I, I always think about this so uh, let's see take my radio career so I I've had a couple of million listeners I think I have more. I may have more. I may have less. But this is averaged. I think about a couple of million listeners a week. Uh, over the, uh, different listeners, not you know. So it's a lot of people. But is it a lot of people? Uh, the the guy who broadcasts in America at the same time I do for much of my career, Rush Limbaugh, has has uh, I don't know four times more listeners than I do. I never it never bothered me for a day. Was I, was I a success? Yeah, compared to people who have two listeners, I was a rousing success. Compared to him, I wasn't a success. So what does success mean? So now I, there's a billion views on, on Prager University. That, that's even more than Rush Limbaugh gets, I acknowledge. So now am I more successful than him? I mean, it, it doesn't, this is not how I think. It's a very important thing to understand that. It's, it's why this, I've spent so much time on this question. Because you're, you're, you're misled to think that's, that's the be-all and end-all of life. You have to even define, you should write down, what does success mean? In my opinion, uh, a big part of success is getting married and making a family. Not everybody can do it, I acknowledge that. Not everybody could be a CEO. I, I acknowledge that too. Having friends who love you, that's a big success. That's a huge success. You know how many lonely people there are? Would you rather have two people, three, four wonderful friends in your life and, 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 uh, and, and make $50,000 or make 
$250,000 and have no friends. Every one of you will say you'd rather have the friends in 50000 So what's success mean? Having friends is successful. It's really important stuff. Maybe it's a good one to end on. I have other good questions here, including Eric in Budapest. Coming to Budapest to speak, by the way, Eric. I don't, I don't announce my speech in, in Hungary. Got another, I got two invitations to Hungary. Go. So I'll let you know. All right. That was a uh, passion-filled uh, session. It was an important stuff. By the way, that reminds me to remind you of the following. First, these uh, fireside chats are really not dated. So if you go back, you know, 40 fireside chats ago, I hope you'll still find it extremely valuable. And show it to friends. These, these are important things I talk about. And they're not talked about much. Certainly not enough. And if you want to know, since I mentioned my belief in God and so on, I think you'll find my, uh, my two books. I'm going to have five eventually on the first five books of the Bible. My commentary, it, uh, it's meant to be life-changing. It's called The Rational Bible. Give it a try. I only use reason to make my uh, case. God is a big deal. I want to talk about that once. Why is God a big deal? Be that as it may, I'll see you next week. On behalf of Otto, thanks for watching. Thank you for watching. If you'd like to keep these fireside chats free, please do by donating to PragerU.